So we're uh, beginning this series on the big picture of the Bible. Uh, we're calling it the whole truth. And, and, and rather than just sort of study passages of the Bible or books of the Bible, what we're going to try and do for a little while is, is take a, a, a tour of the Bible, but it's like a tour at 30,000 feet. You know, what's, what's the arc of the whole story? Sometimes it's easy to explain certain bits of a story, certain bits of our story, or certain bits of the Bible, uh, but the fact is we don't understand any one bit unless we understand the whole of it, the context of it. So uh, this is a useful exercise, I think, in just sort of orienting ourselves to the arc of the story of God and humankind through, uh, through our history, or at least the history uh, that we know. Last week we talked about the skill of truth in life the skill of, of understanding uh, the realities in, in which we live, uh, which, uh, at least in part, often reduces to the ability to understand the bigger picture. Uh, no matter what, uh, what reality you're struggling with in life, you will understand it better if you can take a step back and understand the whole context, the whole picture uh, that is at play. And uh, to illustrate that, we poked at some of the most contentious issues in our popular social dialogue today. Uh, I'm there, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but there have been some contentious political issues of late. Has anybody sort of picked up on this? Any of you ever read? Um, I know you only read the Bible because you're that holy. Uh, but if you pay attention to, uh, to news sources, uh, just, I mean, it's, it's just an outraged uh, political environment, and whenever we get into a season like this, and this is a rare, uh, uh, has a rare intensity uh, this season, I often find myself thinking, well, I mean, everybody is sort of slinging opinions at each other, everybody's slinging perspectives. This is really an important time to step back and understand the whole picture. So, you know, we poked at some of those issues. We talked about issues having to do with poverty alleviation or health care. I hear health care has been an issue lately. Anybody sort of read that? Um, and that sort of hit uh, a wall, uh, perhaps predictably. Uh, on the one hand, there are lots of debates about how really government should be a better provider of health care, a better provider of welfare, a better provider of, of education and insurance and stuff like that. Take a step back, and the fact is the greatest poverty alleviator in world history is actually you know, what we call capitalism or, or business. And it just kind of underscores to me how if you're going to talk about providing health to society, you can't just talk about one thing, right? You can't talk about what government can do for health care or even what schools can do for education. You have to talk about what everybody's contributing to the pie. You need to not just talk about, you know, one policy issue. And, uh, and we're not doing that very well. I fear that the debate has kind of reduced into an us versus them debate. Those wicked capitalists on one hand, the upper class on one hand, and then, you know, the, the working class on the other and how they're getting shafted. That's just not healthy. That debate is never going to be healthy uh, when it reduces to sort of an us versus their classism. I don't like it. We talked about the debate on immigration a little bit, which has just been, you know, this huge devastating uh, and super important uh, debate we're having. On the one hand, um, well, a lot of insensitive statements are being made uh, about immigrants and undocumented immigrants in particular. Uh, and, you know, there's 
in a very large camp who's vulnerable people who are alarmed by this. There's a political position that just sort of charging that, that anybody who is in favor of restricted immigration or, or travel bans is just kind of a mean racist or a mean bigot, uh, which is probably not helpful. Um, there are a lot of people concerned about it for, you know, because they feel threatened, the lack of control and the tumult that they see in the world. On the other hand, there's a larger context for debating immigration that I think has to do with crises in the world. You know, that we can't be shallow America first isolationists, as some suggest today. If we're gonna, if we're worried about too many refugees and too many immigrants in our country, then we probably have to be concerned about what's happening in other countries. You know, if you're concerned about too many immigrants at Kennedy Airport, you probably want to be concerned about the civil war in Syria and what we can do about that and stabilize that. You got to see the whole picture, right? And our political camps are not doing that. Uh, we talked about uh, debates about sexuality and uh, particularly about sexuality and science in the world today. That's been like the biggest moral issue of our age has been, you know, whether, whether uh, sexuality and sexual um, orientation is kind of a human right and there's lots of debates about the science and there's one camp that's saying well science has proven that your sexual orientation is congenital it's inborn it's given you at birth when in fact the science has has pretty much proved the opposite but nobody's talking about that very well I think what we've learned from the important scientific research is that sexuality is is more complex than anybody imagined it was. There are many factors and, and uh, what it suggests, bottom line, is that our social context matters and our choice matters and why, while very few of us choose our, our, our sexual disposition or orientation, the fact is that there's a tremendous amount that we can do to choose our sexual future and that's probably what we should be talking about as a society. What are healthy choices? Um, how can we think about this constructively for the future? And we poked at those things, uh, including uh, poking at issues involving Christianity itself and the different sort of criticisms that come against the faith and against the Bible. They come from all sorts of different directions. So many people are saying different things that one suspects nobody has the whole picture. Christianity cannot simultaneously be a comforting myth that keeps us from fearing death and have, you know, so-called myths about hell and judgment that terrorize people uh, into conformity. It can't be both terrorizing and comforting, right? But we get criticisms from both sides. Let's take a step back and take a look at the whole picture. That's, that's what we're talking about. The, the skill of truth requires that you really think things through from A to Z, from soup to nuts. We're trying to understand the Bible, and we're trying to understand life and humanity in the big picture uh, to take a step back. It's important to see the whole of things, which is why we're doing a sermon series on the Bible at 30,000 feet. Um, today, we're going to take a look at uh, the beginning of Scripture, what the Bible says about the origins of us, which is to say, we're going to take a look at us in context. 
whatever else you say uh, about the early chapters of the Bible um, that we find in the books of Genesis, uh, nobody argues that it's, it's probably a, the, uh, the most coherent and certainly the oldest record we have of something like this. It's a collection of tales that go back as far as humans can remember ourselves. And in that sense, I think it's pretty instructive. Uh, I want to start uh, with, uh, with some cheater points. Uh, I want to, as we go through the whole Bible, I want to introduce a few themes uh, that I've learned are really helpful in navigating Scripture as you go through it, themes that you can return to in order to help yourself understand what's going on. And they're very simple, and they're just a few of them. One is the theme of truth, truth. Uh, that if you're going to understand things, you need a dedication to truth. You need a skill for truth. You need a commitment to see the whole picture in things. And that comes up again and again and again. Quite famously, it comes up in the opening chapters of Genesis that we're going to take a look at this morning because it was a false narrative. It was a deception. It was a falsehood that started all the trouble, right? What started the trouble in the human race? Well, we believed a lie. Somehow, we lacked commitment to truth. Somehow, we failed to see the larger picture of things. Boom! Over the edge we go. And that's, that's an instructive point. You know, one of the things that humanity has remembered about itself is that it got into trouble because it wasn't committed to seeing the big true picture uh, of things. Another theme is, is trust. Sometimes we use the word faith to describe uh, trust. But in a world of free choice and uncertainties, you're pretty much defined by what you trust in life. And just kind of remember that phrase. You're defined by what you trust. And our story uh, of humanity that we find in Scripture uh, is indicative of that. People are pretty much defined by what they trust. Also, subheading, what you trust is what gives your life purpose. It's a good personal proverb. What you trust is what defines your life purpose. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Just kind of keep faith and trust as a theme in your head. And then grace is a big one. Grace is a word that doesn't appear in the Bible until uh, way later uh, in the record. But grace is sort of God's radical generosity and, by extension, uh, the radical generosity that we should have with one another. Uh, the ability to overlook <laughs> our failings and to forgive them and to share and to be just, just humble and giving to one another. Grace is the word uh, that believers often use for that. Uh, and the reality is this starts at the very beginning. If you don't believe in grace, if you don't trust in God's radical generosity, then one, you'll hide from truth. If you don't believe God and the universe are generous, then you will hide from the reality of things. That's an early theme. And uh, if you don't believe in grace, then you're more likely to be dominated by fear than committed to trust, committed to faith. All right, just a few things to keep in mind. And now I'm going to, everybody just kind of get loose. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to blow through the first 11 chapters of Scripture. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk fast. We're going to do this at 30,000 feet. I'm just going to point out a few things. Have you read the beginning of, of the Bible? Anybody, anybody read it? Have you read it? Anybody seen any popular slash really, really bad movies about Noah's Ark recently? You know, stuff like that. 
mostly we are familiar with the big stories of, of the beginning of, of Scripture, so I feel justified in kind of blowing through it a little bit. We're going to go through 11 chapters. Everybody, loosen your shoulders. Turn to the person next to you and give them a neck rub. Get the juices flowing into the brain. Sip your coffee. We're going to take big bites. Big bites. Here we go. In the beginning is how it starts. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we get stories of the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, and uh, the creation of humanity, which is a bit I like because I'm a little bit biased. Uh, there are two accounts of creation in the opening chapters of uh, Scripture, basically chapter 1 and basically chapter 2. Uh, if you've noticed this, they are two accounts that tell the same story. They tell it in different ways. The first account that you get, which is on the first day, God did such and such. On the second day, God did such and such. On the third day, God did such and such. It's actually written in, in poetry form. It's essentially a song. It's a song. And before there was written word, this is how peoples passed down histories and lessons, right? They, they formed it into verse, and they would, you know, sing songs around campfires and stuff like this. So the Bible opens basically with a, with a chant, with a chant. Um, a lot of people uh, draw, you know, very precise scientific conclusions about the origin of the world and how things came together from the first chapters of the book of Genesis. But, you know, it's a song. It's not, it's not a biology book, and it's probably worth understanding that uh, in context. Uh, the second chapter of Genesis is more human-centric. Um, it shifts. It's no longer in, like, poetic verse exactly, but it's clearly uh, a... Uh, you know, a, a, a story, a narrative, an interesting one in the way uh, that it's being told uh, in, in, in the Bible. Uh, and it really focuses on, on man and woman. I mean, it makes a big deal about the relationship between man and woman and how it comes together. One might say that the, the second chapter, the second creation story, is mostly about the creation of what we would call family how man and woman came together and, <clears throat> this is a technical term, got it on in the sort of largest sense of that, of that term. Um, probably I'm thinking, I'm just going to make some, you know, vague, vague generalizations here. Probably I'm thinking that the, the, the first and larger creation account on the first day, God separated, created some light, stuff like that, uh, is not exactly seven literal 24-hour days. Uh, at least it's kind of hard to argue that, <laughs> uh, although many people do it, and if you're one of them, God bless you. But you notice things when you read the Scripture, like God did not create the sun until day four, uh, and if there was no sun, how could there be a day, you know? Because, because sun sets, rises and sets, that, that's what, what defines a day, so it's kind of hard to say that. Uh, some people take, you know, the religious position. I don't care. It was a day. It says day, so it's a day. Fine. Uh, I love that. But I don't think you necessarily have to be like that in order to appreciate what the creation story is, is saying. Uh, there are debates in education about how to teach, you know, evolution and creationism and stuff like that. And there's a big movement in America called often like the Young Earth Movement. 
Um, in the 17th century, there was a famous Irish bishop, an Anglican bishop, who kind of went through the Bible and some of the genealogies and, and made some suppositions about when historical events happened and determined that the world was created uh, in uh, 4004 BC. He dated it precisely. I think it was, what was it, like October 11th? Anybody know? Uh, 4004 BC. It's like very, very, preci very precise. He worked it from like current times backward. And since that time, actually there were a lot of estimates like that around that time, but since then there have always been a, a, a camp of faithful Christians who say, well, the Bible says that the earth is 6,000 years old because we're in basically 2000 AD now and 4000 BC uh, it started. There were many at the time that argued that 6,000 years was the ultimate age limit of the earth and once we reached that point, everything would end. We made it. Uh, we passed that point. Uh, but a lot of people still argue that, and I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I think that guy's name was Usher, Bishop James Usher, uh, was probably incorrect. And we know now, uh, looking at some of the historical events that he tried to uh, pin in time, that he was just like wildly wrong about some of his suppositions. For instance, he argued that the Tower of Babel story took place in 2400 BC. Well, we know from like physical records uh, that we have discovered from archaeology that in 2400 BC there were already many languages on the earth preceding that time. And the supposition of the Tower of Babel story was that there was only one language and it got confused. So like, you know, like factually, he, he, just, he just can't be right. But uh, whatever. Um, I, uh, I wouldn't waste a lot of energy uh, on that debate uh, if, I, if I were you. Um, God appears in these stories in the very beginning. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And throughout most of, of the, uh, the earliest uh, chapters, earliest verses, uh, the word for God is actually plural, Elohim, uh, which uh, many people argue is like an indication of, the first indication of a Trinitarian God. Like one of the first things we know about God in reading the story is that God is not exactly like us. He's not an, he's not an individual as we humans would define uh, individual. It, God talks about himself as if he were a family. And what he says in the creation stories is, let us make man in our image. So in the image of God, he made them man and woman. So God's picture of man, or God's picture of humankind, is man and woman together. Evidently, you need both to get a full picture of what a human being is. Kind of makes sense, given the way we reproduce and stuff like that. But there was always a, a, a plur plurality, I don't know if that's the right word in this context, but a pluralness to the way God talked about people and, and himself. You know, he talks in some sense as if he's singular, but he refers to himself in the plural. There's a togetherness, in other words, that defines existence in God's mind at least according to the accounts that we get in, in Genesis. You know, it's, it's hard to understand humanity by understanding an individual, in other words. It's hard to understand God by thinking in purely individualistic mindsets. We are who we are when we are together. 
God is who He is when He is together. You get it? And it's, it's, a, it's a hard concept for Western individualists to get our brains around, but it's one of, it's one of the earliest things that features in, in the God stories. Genesis chapter 3, we get the story of the fall. I feel like there should be theme music there. What should it be? We get the story of the fall. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty famous story. One of the, the first commands we get in Scripture is like, you know, don't eat the tree. There were two trees in the garden of Eden, and one we could eat of the tree of life, one we could not, which was the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story. A deceiver came along and said to Eve, uh, hey, did God really tell you not to eat that fruit? Look how good it is. The only reason God told you not to eat that fruit is because He knows when you eat of it, you will be knowledgeable like He is. You will know things. Implication, God just wants to hold you down under His thumb. That was the original lie. The original lie was God was… Um, was the deceiver saying about God that he's just interested in lording and over you humans. He created you to be second-class citizens. But if you disobey him, then you'll be on equal footing. That was the original lie. The original lie was God is arrogant over you. God wants to lord it over you. And Adam and Eve, uh, they bought the lie. And that's, that's the original problem. The original lie was God's just interested in lording it over you and keeping you under His thumb. The original problem was that we didn't trust in God's character. The original problem of humanity is not that we failed to believe in the existence of God, it's that we failed to trust that God was good. We knew He existed, but we didn't think He was trustworthy. That theme runs throughout all of Scripture, and it's worth noticing. It's not the existence of God that has given us trouble. It's the nature of God, the character of God that has given us trouble. So that was the original problem. And then we read in the story of the fall also a bit about the solution. There's the original lie, there's the original problem, and then there's the solution which was essentially banishment from the presence of God, which sounds like a punishment. But as the story continues, we see that it was actually a design for a solution. You, you believed a lie. In other words, you gave up on truth. You did not trust me, so now you don't get to be in my presence until you figure this trust thing out. So that was the plan. That was God's plan from the very beginning. And, and you see that people kind of understand that as the story unfolds in Genesis and all of the early stories of, of the Bible. How do we get back to God? Trust. How do we get healthy? Well, it involves trusting God. And that becomes a theme throughout the rest of Scripture. We used to walk with God and know that He exists, but we didn't trust Him. Now, it's hard to see that God exists unless we trust Him because He sort of removed us from His presence. That said, um, God didn't leave us first. That's not what the story says. After the fall, Adam and Eve, realizing they were naked, feeling ashamed about their exposure and what they did, they hide from God. God did not hide from us. 
the humans hid from God. And the first question that comes from that story is God shows up in the garden and says, where are you? Adam and Eve did not handle that question well, and since then, humanity has been asking, where is God? It's just a beautiful story, the way it's laid out. It's just masterful. And to think that this story is thousands of years old, but hangs together so well, it just always blows me away. Then we get into Genesis chapter 4, and we start getting into places where uh, maybe you're a little less familiar with the story. The first part of Genesis chapter 4 you're probably familiar with. It's the story of Cain and Abel. So Adam had a couple of sons, Adam and Eve. They named them Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain took care of the flocks. Abel took care of the crops. uh, And they both sacrificed to God. In other words, they were already working on their relationship with God. But for some reason, God found Cain's sacrifice unacceptable, and Cain got really jealous, really upset, and killed Abel. Right? You know the story. And what we begin to learn in Genesis chapter 4 is how morality gets corrupted. How morality gets corrupted. It's the beginning. Genesis chapter 4 is the beginning of, of uh, the story of corrupted or twisted moral thinking. Cain justifies murder. That's really what the story is about. It's a story of how Cain justified killing his brother. You know, and he says famously at one point, hey, am I my brother's keeper? Like, why am I responsible for this guy? Um, and, uh, And God says to Cain, hey, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Don't do this thing that you're thinking about doing. I can see it coming. Sin is crouching at the door. You must master it or it will master you. And this is a a key insight into the nature of humanity. If you go down the road of moral corruption, it will not lead to freedom. It will lead to slavery. You'll become addicted to it. It will master you. It'll be very difficult for you to find your way back. Cain doesn't listen. Boom. There it is. Uh, And so God uh, responds. Uh, to Cain's disobedience by separating him from the rest of his family, but not by punishing him. He puts a mark of blessing on Cain, and he sends him out into the world uh, and uh, where there are other people uh, in the land of Nod, if you're keeping score. Uh, he marries uh, into that crowd and begins to build cities and become this incredibly creative, huge figure in human history, but God protects him while he's doing it. He does not allow judgment to come, which is a wonderful part of the story. The first thing we know about God and sin is that God protects sinners. That's the first thing the Bible says about sin. God protects sinners. He doesn't want them to lose their life. He wants them to find a way forward. It's worth knowing that, right? It's worth knowing that that's the fundamental thesis statement about sin in Scripture, yes? I love that part. The back end of Genesis chapter 4 fascinates me. Are you still with me? Uh, And what happens is that uh, the story of Cain wraps up and and, and we get uh, stories about his descendants. Um, He he lays with his wife and she became pregnant and she gives birth to Enoch. Uh, He was building a city at the time. He names it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and to Arad was born Mahujael. Why isn't that name more popular today? Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech, here, here the story breaks a little bit. Lamech married two women. 
one named Ada and the other named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock, and the nomads, and his brother was named Jubal, and he was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. And we begin to get a narrative of the creativity of humankind. You know, we become nomadic, and we keep flocks. That was an innovation. We invent music. That was an innovation. And all of these things are recorded in the story of humanity. What's happening here is that humans are trying to remember where they came from. And for the next handful of chapters, that becomes a huge theme. We want to remember where we came from, dot, 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 so that we can get back. That's what Genesis is framing for us. Uh, but Lamech, he has a little break. He marries not one but two women. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. It was well known that God was protecting Cain. Um, so if Cain is protected, I'll be protected too. This is a very weird little break in the story. And I think one of the problems here is a translation error. Uh, Lamech comes and he calls his wives together. And the way it reads in the NIV is, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Uh, I shall not be punished. Why would that appear in Scripture? In, in Hebrew, in the, like the original archaic Hebrew, there was no question mark. So another way to read the sentence isn't, I have killed a man for wounding me. It's, have I killed a man? Have I killed a young man? You could read it that way as well. Are you following me? What is this little story about? It's a story of sexual innovation. What do we know about Lamech? He was the first guy to double up. He was the first guy to take more than one mate. He married two wives. That's what's remarkable about him. And the implication is people are a little unsettled by his choice. He's a little unsettled by his choice. So he calls his wives together and says, hey, ladies, look, it's not like I murdered a man. It's not like I killed someone, right? So Cain actually killed someone, and he's not punished. So our little sexual adventure is no big deal. That's really what this story is about. Uh, and uh, the translators of the Bible, I don't know, for some reason, they, they just don't translate it that way, uh, probably due to tradition and, and stuff like that. But this is the story of that. This is the story of sort of sexual adventurism uh, in humanity. Lamech, is, is, Lamech was the first recorded playa in world history, and he justifies it in the same way that playas have been justifying it ever since. It's like, hey, it's no big deal, right? I mean, it's not like I'm killing someone. It's just kind of, just having a good time, you know? It's a good time. It's not like it's a crime, right? Um, but that starts a lot of trouble in human history. Uh, and, but this is the beginning of that. Genesis is the story of our origins in many different ways and themes. And that's what, that's what, this, uh, that's what this is about. Uh, Genesis 4 is the record of moral corruption. 
and how it crept in uh, to humanity. Pride, sexual adventurism, uh, self-justification, all of those diseases started very early and humanity is kind of telling us how it went down uh, through the origin stories in Genesis. Genesis 5 has a lot of that begetting stuff in it. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. The only thing I'll say about that is that humans were working really hard at remembering where we came from. That's been important. Why has it been important? Again, I think it's because we were trying to remember how to get back. We felt like we were drifting as a race. So we worked very, very hard to understand where our race came from. That's what this document is telling. I just think that's a fascinating facet of humanity. Scholars should, would do better uh, to think about and study that more. And then, and then we get a huge story. Uh, in Genesis 6 through 9, uh, we get four chapters of the story uh, about uh, a flood, a man named o Noah, and a really big boat that he built. Uh, this is a huge story. Uh, in Genesis, and just sort of leaps out in its scope, its grandeur, and of course it's a huge story uh, all around the world. It's truly a global story. It's not just a biblical story, right? Uh, in my, you know, online research, I've counted over 300 separate world cultures that have the story of the flood and the guy who built the boat to escape it. So it's, it's, it's truly global. Uh, it's everywhere. What I want to say about that is that sometimes people criticize the Bible as being false. They say, well, this isn't a record that God gave to a certain people. It's just uh, some ent enterprising people collected a bunch of stories that were out there in culture, in, in culture. I mean, the Epic of Gilgamesh also includes a flood story that was a Babylonian or Sumerian tell. And so some critics will say, you know, the Bible isn't special, it's just sort of uh, people weaving together stories in order to invent a religion. And that line of criticism totally misses the point. What the Bible is, is, a, is an attempt for humanity to understand itself and its relationship with God and the story of, the, uh, of uh, God and humanity over time. If these things really happen, I mean, if there really were sort of a first first family, if there really was a huge flood and we're all sort of descended from those people, we would try to remember that stuff. The fact that 300 other cultures remember it and not just quote-unquote biblical cultures tells you that it's probably true. I mean, in court cases, if there are 300 witnesses, that's good evidence. People misunderstand that. I'm being simplistic in the way that I talk about that, but there you go. Uh, the, the flood story uh, is, is wild. You know, there's this massive flood. Only eight people escape it in the ark. There are a bunch of animals on the ark. You know, you, know the, you know the story. And while you could debate the details, whether or not they're all accurate, I think it is undebatable that this story is based on a true event. Whatever else could be said about the story of Noah and the ark and the flood is that it's based on a true event. It really happened. And the fact that so many people tell the story around the world kind of testifies that this was a major event in human history. Also, archaeological evidence finds that there was a, a huge flood, a Mesopotamia-wide flood all over the civilized world, the inhabited world at the time. In what we think of as the Middle East, there was a flood to the depth of about 20 feet, somewhere around 4500 B.C. 
according to what we're able to tell from the digs. This testifies to big floods, big flood. And a flood that big would have taken, oh, you know, like 150 days to recede, which is about what this story of Noah says. So, so this really, really happened. What is the story of Noah about, though, as it is presented to us in, in Genesis? Well, mankind got wicked, and God uh, was regretful of where things had come, so He sent a flood and, in a sense, kind of wiped the slate clean. Is it a story, then, of God punishing humankind, or is it a story of God developing a way to save humankind? He scoured the earth, he found one righteous family, and he concocted this incredible way to deliver them from disaster. You know, if you want to be very loose about it, you could say, the civilizations in the Middle East had just become terribly wicked, and so God wiped them out and started over uh, with some people that he thought he could trust to, to go a, a, a different way. When you read all the chapters of the story of Noah, you walk away with this feeling. Um, God will always make a way forward. God will always make a way to save, no matter how wicked things get. And we could talk about evidence about how wicked the civilization had become back then, but no matter how wicked things get, God will always invent a way to go forward. And that's why the Noah stories end with all this talk about promises. Look, you know, here's a rainbow. I'm never going to do this again. God not only promises restoration to Noah and his family, he promises it to all the animals in the earth. He says, let this be a testimony to all of creation. We'll always find a way forward, essentially. A beautiful story. And you could tell why so many people try to, uh, try to remember that. For that matter, the story of, of Genesis and creation in the Garden of Eden is not, is not a purely biblical story. It exists in cultures around the world. We're often told in pop culture criticisms uh, that the story of the one true God, the story of Yahweh and all of that is, is uh, a story of, of one people, you know, the Jews who kind of invented their religion and that kind of developed over time and then we innovated with Jesus and kind of created Christianity out of that. But that, that's really not reality. That's not the big picture. And of course, that's not the story that Genesis tells. It tells a global story, a very sweeping story. And, and the facts are also global and sweeping. In, in world cultures, world civilizations, wherever we've been able to find really old religious stories, those stories, the oldest ones, always tell the story of one God, not many. Right? We're used to associating world religions with like, you know, the, the pantheon of the Greeks or the Romans or, or uh, you know, now there's a pantheon in Buddhism or, or like the, the Druidic. There are many spirits that must be worshipped and stuff like that. But the oldest stories of humanity are always about only one God, one creator God. And depending on what culture you come from, you might know of some of these stories. Uh, the Chinese, the oldest God stories we can find are the stories of Shangti. Um, it predates Confucianism by 2,000 years. 2,000 years before Confucius, uh, we have evidence that Chinese, the proto-Chinese people were worshiping Shangdi, the one true God. In, in Japan, we get a version of the same thing. The translation of, of that name is the one true sky lord. The oldest Japanese-esque 
God we can find. Even in Native America, the Incans have us have a, a, a story of uh, Virachocha, the creator of all things. And as near as we can tell, it predates all other pagan worship in what we now call the Americas. Uh, in Hawaii, uh, religious practice uh, changed a lot over the last four centuries, uh, but we have the tradition of Io, uh, the creator god whose name cannot be spoken. I mention that because the word Yahweh cannot be spoken in old Jewish tradition. Yahweh, Io, very similar, right? Um, I could go on and on and on. Um, there is a stream in scholarship that says that monotheism, the story of one God, is the product of modern orderly societies who are looking to sort of jettison the, the pantheism or the many God plural views of primitive societies. Actually, the truth is the other way around, that we believed in one God first for a long time, and then as we lost our way, things became unfocused for us, and we got confused about what and who to worship. And Genesis actually contains the story of how that confusion happened. It contains the story of the birth of all of these other religions uh, after, the, after the Noah story. Um, Genesis gets kind of interesting in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, we get what uh, scholars sometimes call the table of nations. Uh, maybe you guys don't know this. We'll blow through this really quickly. Um, but what it is, is it's, it's one of those records that sounds like a lot of begetting, a lot of like so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so who gave birth to so-and-so. Uh, but it's actually a bit more interesting than that. Than that. So Noah, Noah and his family, uh, they stepped out of the ark. And, uh, you know, at least in their big section of the world, they're it, right? Uh, and so... Uh, the, uh, the families of humanity that are descended from them all trace back to these, these people. At least that's how, how the book reads. A little, a little genetic tidbit. Um, we have a pretty good record of the ten generations following Noah and the ark. <clears throat> you will notice that in the early chapters of the book of the Bible, people lived a long time. You know, Methuselah, 969 years, whatever it was. Um, Noah was 600 years when the boat launched. Uh, he was pretty, pretty advanced. And then after the story of Noah, the Bible record indicates that lifespans got progressively shorter until they've settled about where they are today. And that story lasts 10 generations. Uh, we, actually, we actually have this, um, uh, this, this record. Uh, Noah's sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we have the stories of, of, of their descendants and how long they lived, and it went from like 700 years to 500 years, down to about 120 years, across 10 generations, and then it settled out to like people started living around 100 years. Uh, geneticists will tell you that they've studied um, breeding of isolated populations. Uh, the problem is if you breed with your siblings or your cousins, you get a lot of genetic mutations that way. It's very unhealthy. Insert joke here, but you know, it's, it's very unhealthy. And it takes a population about, an isolated population about 10 generations to create enough diversity 
for the ill effects of those mutations to even out. And so the Bible, in a very weird way, explains why humankind doesn't live as long as it used to. And whether you believe that people were living 900 years or not, right, humanity saw that over time, in an isolated population, people started living less longer than previously, and they recorded that phenomenon. Millennia before the invention of genetics, which just tells you that the humans who put this together were working very, very hard to get the details right. That's just a tidbit. Put that in parentheses, but I just think it's interesting.、Um, the table of nations. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The Japhethites, the sons of Japheth, were Gomer, Magog, Madal, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, and it kind of goes on and on and on. Uh, until it gets down to、uh, verse eight, chapter ten, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. Now we're suddenly Nimrod is like a star on the horizon. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Fantastic phrase. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Evidently, there was a saying in those days. Nimrod had it going on. He was a super famous、uh, figure. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar.、Uh, from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and where this guy founded a whole bunch of different cities. And it goes on from there. Well, I mentioned a couple names. I mentioned Japheth, and I mentioned Nimrod. Again, baby names. I don't know why. I actually met a Japheth once. So, there you go. What we're getting here is the story of the nations, how nations developed from a small population, and how they spread, and how they became peoples with their own traditions. But we're also getting a story of the invention of religion, because the names that are being mentioned became famous, they became heroes, and ultimately, they became worshipped. So we can actually trace uh, the name uh, Japheth, uh, for instance.、Um, <clears throat> See if I can pronounce all of these things well.、Uh, Japheth, his, we, the record of these people is that they migrated out of the Middle East into what is now India, and from there, sort of across into Europe.、Uh, he's sort of the father of、uh, Caucasian races,、uh, you might think. Well, we can kind of trace the migration of, of his name.、Um, In, ancient, in the ancient Sanskrit Vedas of India,、uh, he is remembered as Prajapati, Japati, Japat, Japheth. He's actually a figure in the, the ancient Indian uh, legends, uh, but he is worshipped as the sun and the lord of creation. So we, what, we, what we began doing is worshiping our most famous ancestors in order to preserve our identities, or something like that. And the migration continues. You can kind of trace this name、uh, through human migrations over the millennia. And he eventually, the, the name Japati, or Japet, eventually evolved to be Japiter, Jupiter. He became the god Jupiter in like the Roman pantheon. That's where that came from, Japheth. You can trace these things. Uh, through world history, so the table of nations we get in Genesis is just a fantastic map key for world religion, as well as human migration. And as nearest scholars can tell, it is frighteningly accurate. 
Somebody worked very, very hard to remember where we came from and how it went down. Nimrod uh, is even uh, more impressive. Nimrod uh, became uh, Murdoch, Murdoch, uh, the god Murdoch we read about in Scripture. He became one of the most famous deities of the Middle East. And the cities that are mentioned here are cities that worshipped him for many centuries uh, to follow. Why? Because he was a big guy, because he was a famous person. This is the start of pantheism. We lost our way, and we began worshiping what was handier, you know, our ancestors, our traditions. It's like we began, it's like we Americans would begin worshiping the founding fathers or something like that. Insert joke here, but, you know, that's kind of the drift of, of human history. You following me? Trivia, it's a fascinating thing. I mentioned the Tower of Babel earlier. I'll skip aside because we have to wrap up. But, uh, you know, the, the story of the Tower of Babel is that humankind got together, we're going to build a big tower. God got a little freaked out and said, look, uh, they're getting really powerful. They can do anything. It's in our interest to keep humankind humble. So he sowed a confusion of languages into them. It's a story about how language separates us uh, as, as humans. Um, again, a story of how nations start, and it's a story about where we came from uh, and why we are fundamentally separated. We can't understand each other anymore, is what Genesis is trying to tell you. There was a point in world history in which it became impossible for us to understand each other anymore. And that's a fundamental that we need to remember, the fundamental that we need to remember. It's a truly enlightened book, I think. Anyway. Relax now. That was your tour of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm going to do some tea. And that was kind of meandering and kind of academic. What makes it interesting for me is when we ask, well, what does it all mean? What does it mean about the big picture and understanding us and what do we carry away from it? If you accept that these origin stories at the beginning of this book called the Bible are legitimate records of the earliest human communities. And as I've stressed throughout, there are a lot of reasons to think that they're legitimate records. Then you have to accept this broad truth, I think. You have to accept that above all else, we humans are spiritual creatures. From the very, very earliest stories we told about ourselves, we stressed spiritual things. We stressed God, the role of God, our longing to get back to God, how we drifted from God, how that confused us, how we began worshiping people instead of remembering the one true God. It's all spiritual stuff. The oldest records we have about humanity, and these are the oldest records by far, tell us that we're all wrapped up in the story of God. It's kind of who we are as a civilization. It's who we are as a people. We have a deep awareness as a race that we began with God. And we have a deep awareness as a race that we are reaching out for God. 
And that is a fundamental that you see around the globe, no, no matter what spiritual traditions you find, they all have that in common. We're reaching back. We're trying to find. All world religions agree on this point. We humans are not what we should be. And the disease is spiritual. All traditions say that. And the fact that they uniformly say that should probably tell us something. As a race, we should probably be humble enough to listen to what we are trying to tell ourselves across the millennia. Archaeology backs up this thinking that from the beginning we've been spiritual. The oldest archaeological um, dig we've, well, no, that's the wrong way to say it. Uh, the dig that has turned up the oldest archaeological ruins in human history is the dig that was done in Turkey at this place called Gobekli Tepe, which is, I just find like a fascinating dig. Um, for a long time, the oldest archaeological ruins we found dated, like, dated back to maybe like 5,000 years ago, and that was considered uh, very old. And then, you know, fairly recently, uh, we discovered this, uh, this community, this collection of ancient buildings buried in a hill in Turkey at this place called Gobekli Tepe. Um, and it dates back almost 12,000 years, so like into the last ice age. I mean, these are incredibly, incredibly ancient ruins. And what they've discovered in excavating this site is that it's not a community of houses, it's not a community of farms, it's not a military installation with defenses, it's a collection of temples. 12,000 years ago, we began civilizing in order to remember God. And archaeology tells us that that's why we came together first, is to kind of remind ourselves and to come up with a way of getting back in touch with God. That's what made us human. I just think that's fascinating. And I think it meshes wonderfully with the stories of, of Genesis. We talk about other things than I have in previous sermons. We have cave drawings and like the Australian outback that some people will date back to like, you know, 40,000 years ago, some say even 70,000 years ago. Paintings that are abstract and spiritual in origin. You know, the first things we can determine about humanity was that it was trying to be spiritual, even way before recorded history began. We were celebrating something about ourselves that seemed mystical. That's who we are uh, as, as a race. We know that we're spiritual, we know that we're eternal, and we know that we're messed up. And some of our greatest endeavors are trying to fix the mess up only if we don't get it right, if we don't have a commitment to truth, those endeavors go wrong. We end up causing people to worship ourselves, as Nimrod did. Here's the point. If you feel an emptiness in your life, and humans have felt it all along, you will never feel right until you feel God. If you feel an emptiness in your life, if you feel that something is wrong, you will never feel right until you feel God. And the earliest stories we have all say the same thing. In fact, it's why the earliest stories were written down. We need to be humble enough to accept that. That is our context. 
That's our big picture. Our origin story says, look, you can build big cities. You can invent things. You can come up with music and arts and all sorts of innovation. You can become your own hero, a hero that is worshipped as Nimrod was. You can invent your own morality as Cain did. You could launch out on your own sexual adventure as Lamech did. These are ancient pastimes as well as recent ones. You can do all of that, but in the end, you'll still find yourself at the beginning calling on the name of the Lord, perhaps proclaiming the name of the Lord, because that's where we came from, that's where we're designed for. That's how this all got started. My favorite verse, perhaps, of the first 11 chapters of Genesis comes at the end of chapter 4. I think it's actually printed on the back of your program. And this is after things had gone wrong. This is after some generations had passed. Cain was out there building cities, and, and there was all sorts of adventurism and moral corruption going on. And it simply says at the very end of chapter 4, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's a story of creation. It's the story of beginning. It's the story of the fall. It's the story of corruption. It's the story of invention. It's the story of adventures. And in the midst of that dramatic story, there's this little verse that says, and it all just kind of led us to call for God. Uh, that ancient word that means call on the name of the Lord can also be translated as proclaim the name of the Lord. At that time, we remembered and we started saying, this is getting ugly. Remember God. Remember God. Remember God. Call for God. We got we to gotta get on this, guys. And that started in the early generations of us, and it continues to today. It's a great way to understand uh, the Bible. Everything in this book is built on that truth, I think. And everything else in our faith, really in every world faith, is based on this truth. The basic human condition is our longing for God. I think all the sweeping themes in human history point to that. The basic human condition is our longing for God. So we humans neglect it at our peril. And that's your context. That's us in context, I think. Well, maybe you're in here today and you're still trying to figure out what the itch is. You know, what is that itch that brought you to church? What are you doing here? Well, I mean, you're just human. <laughs> You're just doing the same thing that we've been doing for 12,000 years that we know about. You're feeling it. You know, you're feeling it. You're feeling the basic condition of humanity. It's like, I really need to feel God. I really need to feel God. I feel like I'm drifting a little bit. I feel like no matter what I pursue, uh, no matter what I invent, no matter what I do to kind of fill the gap, I'm, I'm still longing for the Lord. So if that's you, good news. God is in the house today. And in just a couple of minutes, I'll invite you to go over to the prayer line on the Micaiah wall, and there'll be a bunch of prayer ministers on there. You'll go up and say, I'd like to feel God. It's a pretty good request. And they'll lay a hand on your shoulder, and they will pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. 
And that's an interaction between you and God. And if you've never got started with God before, that's a great way to do it. That's a great way to do it.